Hello there, and welcome along to Planet Sport Football Africa, a passion for sport production where we look at African football, what's happening around the continent, and what African players are doing overseas. I'm Steve Vickers in Harare, Zimbabwe, joined by Ida Waringa in Nairobi, Kenya, and by Stuart Weir in the UK. And on this week's show, as teams are getting ready for next month's Africa Cup of Nations qualifiers, we're asking what it takes for small teams to become competitive. We've seen more and more smaller teams cause upsets over the years, like Madagascar, who went all the way to the Africa Cup of Nations quarterfinals on their debut last year. We're going to hear from Lesotho coach Tabo Senong, who hopes to take his team forward. For sure, absolutely, it's very possible. We believe that having our uh, academy that can help us to build a very solid uh, national under-17 team. That's coming shortly, plus a look at the transfers as Arsenal signed Ghana midfielder Thomas Partey on deadline day. Uh, first, a couple of stories in brief. Uh, back in July, we spoke about Tanzanian giants Yanga firing their Belgian coach Luke Amael for allegedly making racist remarks about their fans. Well, Amael's successor, Zlatko Krompetic, has been fired after just 37 days in the job. Uh, strange, really, because the Croatian was in charge for only five games, winning four and drawing the other one with Yanga on top of the table. And don't give up hope is the story of South Africa women's international Noku Matlu, who's finally got a big contract in Europe at the age of 35. Matlu has joined Spanish side Ibar. She was the African Women's Footballer of the Year back in 2008 and finally has got the recognition that she deserves. So there's lots of friendly matches on then as teams are getting ready for next month's Africa Cup of Nations qualifiers and hopes are high of making it to the finals in Cameroon next year. We're asking what does it take for small teams to become competitive? You'll probably have heard the saying that there are no small teams in African football anymore these days and we have seen more and more smaller teams causing upsets with some getting to qualify for the Africa Cup of Nations even for the World Cup. Well, certainly the gap between the big teams and the small teams is much smaller than it was. The likes of Nigeria, Cameroon and Egypt were among the undisputed big teams of African football back in the 1990s, but things have certainly changed since then. We remember that Angola and Togo both qualified for the 2006 World Cup, and we then saw Cape Verde progress into the top ten ranked African teams. All three nations now, though, have dropped down the rankings. We saw Guinea-Bissau qualify for the 2017 Nations Cup, and last year Madagascar went all the way to the quarterfinals on their debut. Well, Lesotho have never qualified for the World Cup or the Nations Cup, but they are serious about making progress, with South African Tabo Senong appointed their coach last year. Now, Senong twice led South Africa to the FIFA Under-20 World Cup finals, and he's now hoping to improve the football of Lesotho. Senong spoke to Nick Said and Mark Gleeson on the Kasafa podcast. It was a great opportunity for me, but... Uh... You know, also for Lesotho, for Basotho, and the senior nation, we know that we trying to improve the football in the and we're looking forward uh, to be one of the fastest growing football nations in the region. And uh, I've enjoyed um, the culture, you know, of the people, the football. And um, yeah, such a massive challenge, huge opportunity for a young coach, but also 
a great opportunity for players to buy someone who wants to move them out of their comfort zone. You speak there of the challenges, coach. What what do you see as the the kind of the hurdles going forward? I think um, it is not a, a secret that uh, we know that Lesotho uh, football we are actually semi-professional. So it's not an easy phase, uh, especially when you are a national coach. Maybe the second challenge will be the number of players that are playing in competitive TV abroad, overseas, or even in competitive uh, countries like South Africa. We have four players in South Africa at the moment uh, that are representing the Sochi national team. We also have three student players that are involved in college football in the U.S., so forward to see the number growing up, but it is a challenge uh, to have such a minimal uh, number. And then, of course, we're hoping that the number can increase to help some of the players to, to go out of Lesotho and maybe go to competitive football leagues. Coach, I mean, it's often said that uh, a small population uh, in a country like Lesotho is a resource problem. But, I mean, there are people who would say, well, Lesotho's got 2 million, Uruguay has got 3.5 million, and we all know how powerful Uruguay is. Is there is there a way that you can work around this problem of resources, just uh, playing resources, only 2 million people? Is there a way for you to work around it and to become almost a Uruguay of African football? For sure, absolutely. It's very possible, Mark. Number one, we felt and we think, we believe that having our uh, academy that can help us to build a very solid under national, uh, seven, uh, uh, national under-17 team could be the first start because uh, not having enough academies in the country has been a challenge because obviously without the youth, there's no future. With some of the good resources already that we have, like accommodation, training facility, uh, we can be able to to identify the best talents in the country. Maybe possibly a group of 25 to 20 to to, to 30 players uh, in different districts around the uh, the country, so that we fast track them. We all know that um, developed countries rely on to develop players for them in academies because clubs have resources. But uh, we clubs in the Sudan that don't have resources. It will be very unfair to rely on them to develop players for us. So it is our responsibility as an association in the Sutu, as a football association in the Sutu, to have our own academy that can help us to develop better under 17 players, that will be better under 20 teams, and eventually progressing to our senior national team. So that's the Lesotho coach, Tabo Senong, speaking to Nick Said and Mark Gleason on the Kasafa podcast. Uh, so Uruguay, given there, is an example of a successful small country, winning two World Cups a long time ago and more recently reaching the semi-finals of the 2010 World Cup and the quarter-finals in 2018. So can Lesotho also do well with a small population? Uh, not much for the coach to work with, I must say. A semi-professional team, only a few players outside the country, but a leadership with a vision. What do you think, Ida? Well, the task ahead won't be easy, Steve, and the vision, no matter how clear, always needs to be backed up with tangible support, you know. As for Senong, well, he's just 40 years old, but has been coaching in different capacities for almost half his life. He has a CAFE license and a coaching certificate from the renowned Johan Cruyff Institute. 
He was also the assistant coach of the South Africa A team. That was from 2014 to 2018. And then went on to coach South Africa's under 20 side for the next four years. Now, while there, he won the Kosafa Challenge Cup. That was back in 2017. And as you've put it also, Steve, he led the team to the FIFA Under-20 World Cup. That was in 2017 and 2019. So 2017 was a particularly good year for him. So whereas the football in Lesotho is only semi-professional, Steve, we're seeing a coach with a reasonably high degree of professional experience. And he can hopefully lend some of his know-how to improving the context of Lesotho's football. And Lesotho are in the same Afghan qualifying group with Nigeria, Benin and Sierra Leone. Not going to be easy in the slightest. And to be honest, Steve, few, if any, will give the crocodiles, as they are known, <laughs> a chance of swimming out of that pool, so to speak. Yes, but a chance maybe at least for Lesotho to get more experience in those qualifiers. And what are the key factors to you, Ida, for a small country to do well? Um, a strong footballing culture maybe, or a crop of star players, good leadership, uh, strong youth development, go to search for players in the diaspora maybe who can play for you. You've just said one of the most important things there, Steve, good leadership and not just at FA or at federation level, but at government level as well. And allow me to broaden the conversation, if you will, because this for me, Steve, is something that should cut across the board for both small and big countries alike. Because if you look at all the countries that do well, and not only in football, but in sport generally, you notice that those countries' governments take sport very seriously and as such support it financially. Because, look, just as we've mentioned about Sinong coaching the Lesotho's men's team, he might have all the vision, all the professional experience in the world, but if he isn't given the necessary support, then it just won't amount to too much. Leadership that cares more about leaving a legacy as opposed to who is at the top. And Steve, I've always said that that is one of the biggest differences between football in Africa and, say, Europe, for example. Because it's not to say that these power plays don't happen there as well. But you find that they happen in a setting that already puts the player first by providing everything he or she needs. So basically everything else after that becomes incidental. And another thing, Steve, equally important is age-grade development in whatever sport. I mean, yes, we might have the Sadio Manis right now, but is Senegal, for example, producing the next superstar as we speak? So you mix that with a rich football culture and you have a mix that can work. Yeah, so leadership and youth development are two big areas. Uh, then there are plenty of countries in Africa with big populations that are not doing well of late. Uh, so the size of a country does seem to not be the biggest factor. I agree. It's definitely not the biggest factor, Steve, and especially nowadays. Um, Lagos, for example, you know, has a rough population of give or take 14 million. Now, that's a city with seven times the people in a country like Lesotho. But Nigeria have fallen short of late. And um, you look at the last time that the Super Eagles won the AFCON. Well, that was seven years ago. And then they failed to qualify for the next two editions after that. You look at Ghana, not too long 
ago, Steve, we were talking about the country having such a surplus of talent, you know, that some of their players are even getting stranded, <laughs> you know, in places like Zimbabwe, trying to get clubs to play for. Yet the last time that the Black Stars won the Afghan was all the way back in 1982, um, despite getting to the finals tons of times. So, you know, it's definitely different. But on the flip side, you know, you look at Madagascar and what they did at the 2019 Nations Cup, a relatively small country with one of the best performances in that tournament. And you've mentioned Uruguay there, but Steve, allow me to add the 2016 Euro sensation, Iceland. Um, you know, we've been talking countries with populations all ranging in the millions, but Iceland has just over 360,000 people. Their story, Steve, was out of this world, beating England to get to the quarters, then qualifying for the 2018 World Cup, the smallest country by population to ever do so. And we're talking Lesotho being semi-professional here, but remember some of the Iceland players were dentists, you know? So we're definitely seeing the narrative changing. It's more and more about how talent is developed as opposed to, you know, really having an abundance of that talent in the first place. Yes, a great example there of uh, Iceland. Thanks, Ida. Asking for your thoughts on this this week on social media. What do you think it takes for small teams to become competitive? Uh, we heard there from Lesotho coach Tabo Senong. He wants to set up a strong youth development policy in Lesotho. Uh, does it take maybe a crop of star players, a top coach maybe, a strong footballing culture, good leadership, as Ida mentioned there, or going maybe to look in the diaspora for players who can play for you and to strengthen your squad you can go to our facebook page and post a comment there that's planet sport football africa or send us a whatsapp to plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero that's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero what do you think it takes for small teams to become competitive well, this is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. Still to come, Stuart on the English Premier League with those incredible scorelines last weekend. You can follow us on Twitter at Planet Sport FA and on our website, planetsport.tv. Recently added there is a look at tips on tackling tough times. A very encouraging blog, especially going through challenges right now. You can go to our website, planetsport.tv, and click on the blog section and see tips on tackling tough times. Let's go to social media now. And last week we asked, what do you think about the change to the handball law? We're only a few weeks into the new English Premier League season, but there's been strong criticism of the changes to the handball law. For example, Newcastle were given a late penalty against Tottenham after Andy Carroll headed across against Eric Dyer's arm from close range. Well, Dyer was unaware of where the ball was, but his arm was in an unnatural position, so the application of the new rule was clear that it is a handball. Well, some are saying the new law is damaging the game, but there had been calls to make the rules clearer. So we asked, what do you think? Here with your comments is Planet Sport Football Africa's Yvonne Mangunda. Thanks, Steve. And on WhatsApp, we start today with Adam Chama in The Gambia, who says simply, the new handball law is a very cheap. And Emma in Ghana adds, it's killing the competition. So neither Adam or Emma are fans of the new law, and neither is John Moono in Zambia.
The handball rule for this season is very destructive, says John. It can't distinguish between an accidental handball and a deliberate handball. The Dyer and Lindelof handballs were both given, but are purely accidental handballs because both players were in motion, and usually the hand is not in the natural position when in motion. VAR should clearly help the referees to distinguish between the two kinds of handballs. Yes, and the Lindelof incident John mentioned there was in the Manchester United 3-1 home defeat to Crystal Palace a couple of weeks ago. Another correspondent with some strong words on this topic is Sana Jani in the Gambia. I think the new role is really damaging the game, says Sana. The rules should be made much more clearer or else the authorities need to revisit their decision. But not everyone is against the new law. James Olutunde Rob in Sierra Leone. As for me... I guess it's okay, says James. One thing we should not forget is the fact that what goes around comes around. So while it may not be favorable for you today, it will be another time. No matter how it looks, if it hits the hand, it's handball. The laws have been made not just for one team, but for all the teams. And that's exactly what happened for Crystal Palace when they won that dubious penalty we mentioned earlier at Old Trafford one week, but then conceded a very similar penalty themselves against Everton the next. Meanwhile, Sylvester in the Gambia is happy to give the new law a try. Well, I like the beautiful game, says Sylvester, and this football rules are on a trial and error basis. So let's give it a try and see what happens. Players too need to be mindful of where they keep their hands in the game. Remember, every game has its rules, and if you abide by the rules, you'll be safe. Richard Deco Ababio in Ghana is even more positive. It is good, for the new law can help the game, says Richard. But Lamine Songo in the Gambia disagrees and thinks the new law is unfair. In a nutshell, that new rule is controversial rather than bad, says Lamine. I watched the Tottenham-Newcastle match from start to finish, and while I'm not a fan of either team, to me it was unjust on Tottenham. The handball was involuntary, and therefore it shouldn't stand for a penalty, especially at the death of the match. It was so unfair. And Amadubaji, also in the Gambia, agrees. To be honest, the new law is damaging the game because that dire handball was unbelievable. It's killing the spirit of the game. The responsible authorities governing football need to take a second look at this new handball rule, says Amadou. Moses is in Malawi. A new law gets confused when it's first introduced, and then eventually it gets into the player's mind, says Moses. It was the same with VAR. But now even coaches are getting confused by the new handball law. We always welcome your voice notes here on Planet Sport Football Africa. And here's Michael Mboka, in the Gambia. With regards to this new system of handball, I think the new rules will be adequately published to players so that they can acquaint themselves with the relevant ways of keeping their hands off the ball. Because the referee has the final say. If the decision is beyond his imagination, he will go and verify from VAR. So Michael's saying there that it's up to the players to keep their hands away from the ball. And the final decision is down to the referee. We can always check with VAR. But not everyone is keen on the technology that's now available. Ecclesiastes in Uganda says, Too much technology and intended improvements to the game are actually killing it. They should allow for the difference between an accidental handball and an intentional one. And Ronald B. Yanate in the Gambia would like to see some clarification of the new rules. I think the FA should make the law clearer. 
says Ronald. Sometimes defenders jump and open up their arms to help them balance when it comes to aerial balls. So in that case, the FA should consider whether the action is intentional or accidental. And finally, Lai Sise, also in the Gambia, wants to see the new law changed. It has been pure drama with recent decisions as far as the new handball rule is concerned, says Lai. The rule is ridiculous as far as I'm concerned and needs urgent and timely intervention. So then, Steve, a few of our correspondents this week are prepared to give the new handball law a chance. And one or two think it's a positive development. But the overwhelming reaction this week is that this law is bad for football and needs to be changed and changed quickly. Well, thanks, Yvonne. That's Yvonne Mangunda there. We'll see uh, if the pressure from various quarters will result in any changes to the handball law. Uh, the law itself, though, was uh, made by IFAB. That's a FIFA's lawmaking body. Uh, so you'd think it wouldn't be that easy to change it, at least uh, not in a hurry anyway. Thanks so much for all of those comments. Now let's go to Stuart Weir, our European football expert in the UK. It was transfer deadline day last Monday, and Arsenal again showed their love of African players with the deadline day signing of Ghana midfielder Thomas Partey from Atletico Madrid. And Cameroon's Eric Maxim Chopumating had another dream move. Steve, we keep hearing how the pandemic is causing great financial problems for Premier League clubs. But it didn't stop the 20 clubs spending $1.25 billion over the past two months on new players. Chelsea were the biggest spenders, $286 million, and Burnley the lowest, just over $1 million. And as you say, one of the big moves was Thomas Partey from Atletico Madrid to Arsenal. Partey started in the Atletico Madrid Academy, but it wasn't until he was 24 and after two loan spells that he became a regular in the Atletico first team. I understand that Mikel Arteta wants to play four in midfield, changing the Arsenal formation and sees Partey as a key signing to add some backbone to that midfield. One thing Partey will have to watch is his disciplinary record, with five red cards and 73 yellow cards in his career in Spain so far. And yes, as you say, what a remarkable season for Eric Chopomuting. You'd have to say that his time at Paris Saint-Germain has been disappointing, with only 13 starts in two and a half seasons, and none at all in the league last season. He's selected for the Champions League final against Bayern Munich, and finishes up being transferred to the German club. While he is Cameroonian by nationality, he was born in Germany and played the first 10 years of his career there, so he should fit in reasonably easily. Now, Steve, we've had only four rounds of Premier League games, but Chelsea are already onto their third goalkeeper. Their number one keeper, who cost $60 million, Kepa, gifted Liverpool a goal and was promptly dropped by manager Frank Lampard. And Lampard then brought in the 39-year-old Willie Caballero, but by game four, he too had been replaced by new signing Edouard Mondi, born in France, but opted for Senegalese nationality. He's 28 and has played in France for 10 years, most recently for Rennes. He's never played for any of the top teams in the French League. And while it's a great opportunity for him, I also think it's a massive step up for the goalkeeper to move from the French League to Chelsea, where he will be in the spotlight all the time, with a club expecting to be challenging for the Premier League title and progressing in the Champions League. 
Manchester United have signed an 18-year-old Ahmad Traore from Atalanta in Italy. The Ivorian teenager has only had three substitute appearances for the Italian club, but if he's successful at United, the transfer fee could rise to $48 million, an awful lot for somebody who's yet to prove how good he is. Samata from Tanzania has left Aston Villa after six months going on loan to Fenerbahce in Turkey. Yes, are things not working out in the Premier League for Tanzania's Mbwana Samata? Well, it was a long transfer window. Earlier on in the window, there was a huge deal for Nigeria forward Victor Osimen going from French side Lille to Napoli in Italy for what's believed to be a record amount for an African player of $95 million. Also, Chelsea had signed Morocco's attacking midfielder Hakim Ziyech from Ajax earlier in the year in another big move. Another Moroccan moving, a 21-year-old Atraf Hakimi. He joined Inter Milan from Real Madrid. He'd been on loan at Borussia Dortmund doing well for two seasons. No games on this weekend as it's an international window and uh, just as well really as some of us are still recovering from last weekend's action with Liverpool's staggering 7-2 loss to Aston Villa and Manchester United thrashed 6-1 at home by Tottenham. Everton are the surprise leaders. We continue to have lots of goals and plenty of upsets. Any explanation for this, Stuart? Uh, Is it the empty stadiums or the short off-season break maybe? Well, it certainly has been a very strange first four weekends for the Premier League season. Let's start with the figures. Last season's average number of goals per game in the English Premier League was 2.7. This year, it's 3.8. That's an average of more than one extra goal per game. And in Spain's La Liga, we've seen exactly the same trend with an average of an extra goal per game. But in Italy, Germany and France... It's about the same number of goals or even less than last season. The three promoted clubs have certainly helped the statistics, with West Brom conceding 13, Fulham conceding 11, and Leeds United's four games seeing 17 goals scored. But it's not just the number of goals overall, it's the games in which they've come. Who would have predicted Manchester United losing 6-1 at home or that Liverpool, the champions, would concede seven goals and to a club which just avoided relegation last season. Then there's Leicester City. You'd have expected them to lose away to Manchester City and to win comfortably at home to West Ham. However, they scored five away to Manchester City and then lost tamely 3-0 at home to West Ham. So what is going on? There are a number of possible explanations for the number of goals. Well, the increase in the number of penalties has certainly helped. VAR has had a big hand in the number of penalties, but actually VAR has disallowed more goals than it has awarded this year. Some people suggest that players are showing less inhibition with no fans in the stadium and that they're willing to take risks that they might not do with 60,000 people watching. People have told me that competing without spectators makes it seem more like a training session. And again, perhaps players are more inclined to try things in that environment. We've also seen a number of goalkeeping errors leading to goals. And remember that we're playing with a new ball and goalkeepers may be adjusting to the flight of that new ball. I also read an article recently about the lost art of tackling. And for people of my age, the traditional hard-tackling defender is very much less common than in the past. 
defenders are now expected to be able to build from the back, to look comfortable on the ball, to play sweet passes, to overlap and put in crosses. Sometimes you look at a defender and think he's much better on the ball than he is in traditional defence. And to add to that, Eric Dyer of Tottenham says that defenders are now terrified of conceding a VAR penalty and are therefore reluctant to commit to a tackle. There are many theories no one really knows and it will certainly be fascinating to see if the trend of more goals continues when the Premier League resumes next week. And finally, Steve, there is some disturbing news from Arsenal that the redundancies due to financial issues include Gunnarsaurus, the dinosaur mascot who's been around for 30 years. He will be missed. But in a funny development, Mehmet Ozil has offered to pay his wages. So interesting development there. Yes, the Gunnosaurus is a huge green dinosaur-like mascot that wears an Arsenal jersey at their home games. Uh, Ozil had tweeted saying, I was so sad that Jerry Kay, also known as our famous and loyal mascot, the Gunnosaurus, was being made redundant after 27 years and said, I'm offering to reimburse Arsenal with his full salary as long as I will be an Arsenal player for... Well, Ozil's gesture didn't seem to impress the Arsenal management. They said that the Gunnosaurus is coming back anyway, and they left Ozil out of their Europa League squad, suggesting that he might not be an Arsenal player for that much longer. Well, that's it for the show for this week. So from me, Steve Vickers and Yvonne Mangunda in Harare, from Ida Waringa in Nairobi, and Stuart Weir in the UK, thanks a lot for listening, and Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production.